Chapter 4 of Dynamic Thought or the Law of Vibrant Energy by William Walker Atkinson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sander Knight. www.sandernight.net. Life and Mind Among the Atoms. To the majority of persons, the title of this chapter would seem an absurdity, not to speak of inorganic mind, the idea of life in the inorganic world would seem a ridiculous paradox to the man on the street who thinks of substance as dead lifeless and inert and to tell the truth even science has held this view until a comparatively recent period laughing to scorn the old occult teaching that the universe is alive and capable of thinking but the recent discoveries of modern science have changed all this, and we no longer hear science speaking of dead matter or blind force. It recognizes that these terms are meaningless, and that the dreams of the old occultist are coming true. Science confronts a live and thinking universe. She is dazzled by the sight, and would shade her eyes, fearing to see that which she feels must present itself to her vision when her eyes become accustomed to the sight. But a few daring minds among the scientific investigators are dreaming wonderful dreams today, and they tell us in broken tones of the wonderful visions that are passing before their sight. They dare not tell it all, for they fear the ridicule of their fellows. Their visions are of life, universal life. In its investigations of the material, science has penetrated so far into the recesses of things that its most advanced thinkers and investigators now find themselves standing in the presence of the immaterial. Science today is proclaiming the new doctrine, that is the same as the old doctrine of the occultist, the doctrine of life everywhere, life even in the hardest rock. Before entering into our consideration of the evidence of mentation in the inorganic world, let us accustom ourselves to the idea of something like life being found there, it will be better for us to approach the subject by easy stages. Where there is life, there must be mind, so let us first look for evidences of life. The man on the street would require something more tangible than scientific explanations of sensation, attraction, etc. What can we offer him as an illustration? Let us see. Suppose we call the attention of the man to the fact that metals get tired after considerable work without periods of rest. Science calls this the fatigue of elasticity. When the metals are given rest, they recuperate and regain their former elasticity and health. The man may remember that his razor acts this way occasionally, and if he talks the matter over with his barber, his suspicions will be verified. Then, if he consults a musician friend, he will be informed that tuning forks also become tired and lose their vibrating quality until they are given a rest. Then his machinist friend will tell him that machinery and factories must be given a rest occasionally, else it will begin to disintegrate and die. Machinery will go on a strike for a rest if it is overworked. Then metals contrast disease. Science informs us that zinc and tin have been infected, and the infection has spread from sheet to sheet, crumbling the metal into powder. The spread of the infection resembling the spread of a plague among animals or plant life. Science has experimented with copper and iron and has found that these metals may be poisoned with chemicals and will remain in a weakened condition until antidotes are administered. 
Window glass workers declare that there is such a thing as glass disease that will ruin fine stained glass windows unless the infected panes are removed. The glass disease starts with one pane and spreads gradually to the entire window and from there to other windows. Metallurgists have found that when metallic ores are put under certain forms of pressure, they seem to lose strength and become weak until the pressure is removed. Do these things mean anything to the man on the street? Another step in the consideration of life in the inorganic world is the realization of the fact that, after all, there is but the very finest line separating the higher forms of mineral life from the lower forms of vegetable life, or the life of those things which we may call either plants or animals. The lifeline is being pushed further back every day by scientific investigation, and the living thing of today was the inanimate thing of yesterday. We hear much talk in the newspapers about some scientist or another discovering life or creating life in some inanimate substance. Bless your hearts, you who are alarmed by these reports, no one can create life in anything, for it already exists there. The discovery is simply the realization of this fact. Science, by means of the microscope, has brought to light forms of living things resembling in appearance the fine dust of inorganic minerals. These low forms of life exhibit but the simplest vital processes, the same very closely resembling chemical processes, although just a shade higher in the scale. Living creatures have been found which could be dried and laid aside like dust for several years, and then revived by being immersed in water, when they would resume their vital process as if they had been awakened from a sleep. Forms of life called bacilli have been discovered that can pass through degrees of heat and cold that can be expressed only by vague symbols or figures, the heat and cold being so intense that the unscientific mind cannot imagine it. In appearance, the diatoms resemble the chemical crystals. These diatoms are minute, one-celled living things, having a hard but thin silicous covering or shell of extreme delicacy. They are what are known as microscopic creatures, that is, visible only through the microscope. Some of them are so small that it would take a thousand or more to cover the head of a pin. But remember this, the microscope reveals them as living creatures, performing vital functions. They are found in the deep waters of the ocean. To the naked eye they appear like fine sand or dirt, but under the most powerful microscope they are seen to comprise many species and varieties exhibiting many peculiar shapes and forms. In fact, they have been called living geometrical forms, their shapes and appearances almost exactly resembling those of the chemical and mineral crystals. Science informs us that these and similar microscopic creatures number thousands of families or species, and it is thought that the varieties of microscopic creatures outnumber the varieties of creatures visible to the unaided sight. And remember that there is probably a still greater world of submicroscopic creatures that is a world invisible even when the most powerful microscope is used. Who knows what wonders are to be found there, what forms of creatures live and move and have their being there. In passing by the subject of the resemblance between the outward forms of living things and the crystals, it is interesting to note how the crystals of frost and ice resemble the forms of leaves, branches, flowers, foliage, etc. The pane of glass covered with these frosty forms resembles a garden. The disk 
of saltpeter under the effect of polarized light very closely resembles the form of the orchid. Recent scientific experiments have shown that certain metallic salts, when subjected to a galvanic current, group themselves around one of the poles of the battery and assume a mushroom-like shape and appearance. At first they seem to be transparent, but gradually they assume color, the top becoming a bright red, with the underside showing a pale rose color, the stem being a pale straw color. The discoverers of these peculiar forms called them by the German equivalent for inorganic mushrooms. But even this term seems scarcely worthy of them, for they even show a trace of something like organs. Under the microscope they are seen to have fine canals or vein-like channels running through their stems from top to base. And through these veins the thing absorbed fresh material and actually grew like low forms of fungus life. Were these things merely minerals or chemical substances, or were they low forms of organic life? The lines between the inorganic and the organic are being wiped out rapidly. The supreme power that caused life to be, caused it to all, and did not divide its manifestations into dead things and live things, but breathed into all the breath of life. And the more clearly we see the actual evidence of this, the greater does that supreme power seem to us. A very low form of living creatures called the Monera is held by science to be the one of the strands of the connecting link between the organic and inorganic worlds. The Monera are the lowest and simplest form, at least so far known, of organic life. They may be said to be organic creatures without organs, being but little more than simple cells. Tiny globules of plasm surrounded by a thin membrane, their sole vital function being the absorption of nourishment through the pores of their covering, just as a piece of chalk would absorb water, and the consequent conversions of the nourishment into material for growth, the whole process resembling chemical action. The Monera reproduce their kind simply by cleavage or separation of the substance of the mother cell into two, and so on, being little more than the growth of crystals. The Monera are everywhere recognized without question as living creatures, but they exhibit merely a trace more of life than do certain forms of crystal. The difficulty in considering crystals as living things is partially due to the outward form and substance so different from the form and substance of the higher living things. But we have seen that the diatoms took on shapes and crystals, and that the outer shells or covering was similar to silica, a mineral, the inner substance being but a tiny speck of plasm similar to that of the substance of a plant cell. And then we may look to the tiny bit of chalk dust, which was once the skeleton form of a living creature. The same is true of coral. In the very low forms of life, the skeleton, or form, is the thing most apparent, the plasm of living substance being still smaller and less apparent, and yet the skeleton, or shell, was formed by the vital processes of the creature, and was a part of its body, just as is the skeleton or bony structure of the higher animals. And in the same sense, it is living substance. And remember that there is but little difference between these bodies of the low forms of life and the bodies of crystals, and the chemical constituents of its plasmic inner body is but slightly different from that of the crystals, 
and its nature and vital process are by a shade higher in the scale than those of the crystals. You may ask why we have said so much of crystals. The reason is just this. Science has begun to think of crystals as semi-living things, and its most advanced investigators and thinkers go further and assert that the crystals are alive. Crystallization is an evidence of life process. Crystals arrange themselves in well-known and well-defined shapes, direction and order of formation being observed implicitly. Each crystal follows the laws and habits of its kind, just as do plants and animals. Its lines of crystallization are mathematically perfect and according to the laws of its being. Not only this, but some substances have a range of six or seven different forms of crystal forms possible to them. In some cases, a chemical element assumes one form of crystallization when it manifests as one mineral, and a second form when it manifests in another form. In each case, however, it manifests along well-known and recognized courses of action, movement, and shapes. Crystals may be killed by a strong electrical discharge, that is, they are so affected that they disintegrate, their atoms separating to form new combinations, just as is the case with the bodies of higher forms of life. Some scientists have gone so far as to claim that they had discovered something akin to rudimentary sex action in certain crystals, resembling the sex process of the lowest plant life. But this has not, as yet, been positively established, although it seems probable and reasonable. A recent writer in one of the magazines has said, Crystallization, as we are to learn now, is not a mere mechanical grouping of dead atoms. It is a birth. This may seem mere scientific poetry until the process of crystallization is carefully studied, when it will be seen to give evidence not only of something like vital and mental action, but also something very much like reproductive functioning of the lower forms of life. There is an assimilation of material to build up the crystal in the first place, just as an animal assimilates matter to build up its shell, or a tree to form its bark. The form of the crystal is truly its body, and behind and in that body there is something at work that is not the body, but which is forming it. And later on that crystal increases in size and then begins to separate into two, throwing off a smaller crystal, identical in form with the parent crystal. This manner of reproduction is almost identical with the process of reproduction in the lower forms of life, which consists merely of a like separation of the parent form into two and the throwing off of the offspring. The principal difference between the growth of crystals and of the monera is that the crystals grow by absorbing fresh matter and attaching it to their outer surface, while the monera grow by absorbing fresh material and growing outwardly from within. But this may be accounted for by the difference in the density of their bodies, the crystal being very solid while the monera is like a thin jelly. If the crystal had a soft interior, it could grow like the monera or diatom, but then it would be a diatom. The process of crystallization is accountable only by the theory that in the crystal there exists something like life and mentation. There is something more than mere mechanical motion or blind chance at work here. Does not the process of crystallization look like rudimentary purposive action? 
It may be said that it is movement and action in accordance with some established law of nature, granted. But is not that also true of the physical processes and growth of higher forms of life? Is the forming of the crystal form to be considered as a mechanical effect, and the forming of the shell of the Monera to be considered a mental and vital action? If so, wherefore? The point is that crystals act as if they are alive, and capable of assimilation, growth, and reproduction in a manner and degree differing, but very slightly from corresponding functioning of the lower forms of life. Verily, the crystals are alive, and if alive they must have at least a trace of mind. Does it not appear that they exhibit something very like both? Quoting from a recent writer, let us notice that recent investigations in the new department of science, which has been termed plasmology, show in crystals phenomena which are absolutely analogous to vital phenomena, so much so that photographs of certain forms produced in the changes of crystals appear to be almost exact duplicates of those in the various lower forms of microbes. The question has been raised as to whether the microbe is no more alive than the crystal, or the latter equally endowed with life as is the former. And now another step in our search for life. Remember that the hardest rocks are composed of crystals of certain kinds, and if the higher crystals have life, then it is only fair to suppose that the lower and cruder forms are likewise endowed, even if in a still lower degree. And if all crystals are endowed with life, then the most solid rocks, being composed of aggregations of crystals, must be masses of inorganic life, and consequently of inorganic mind. A crystal, according to Webster, is the regular form bound by plane surfaces, which a substance tends to assume in solidifying through the inherent powers of cohesive attraction. That definition of Webster tells the whole story, and we see that a crystal is merely a regular form of a substance, which the substance tends to assume in solidifying, that is, in reassuming a solid form after being in a liquid or melted state. And that is just what all the rocks of the earth did when they emerged from the melted state in which they existed in the early days of the world's history. And this tendency that caused them to solidify and assume certain crystal forms, and which must have existed potentially through the melted state, what of that? What is this tendency or force? The definition answers the inherent powers of cohesive attraction. So here is cohesive attraction that we shall consider fully in forthcoming chapters of this book. Inherent, too, the definition says. What is inherent? Let us see. Webster defines inherent as permanently existing. So this power of cohesive attraction permanently existed in the substance or else in connection with it. Let us take another look at cohesive attraction. Cohesive attraction is that form of universal attraction that causes the molecules of a body to draw together. That invisible power of the molecule by which it draws another molecule toward itself and itself toward the other. The manifestation of which power by several molecules tends to draw each of them together. We shall learn of these particles of substance called molecules before long. It is a primal cause of motion, this mutual attraction and drawing power. Now is it reasonable to assume that this wonderful power is a mere blind force? 
Is it not more reasonable to think of it as a form of vital action, life action? Dead things could not manifest this force and action. And if this cohesive attraction is an evidence of life, then all substance must have life manifesting through it. Not only the rocks, but the soil and earth and dirt, for they are but crumbled rock. And when we thus consider substance as being the body through which life is manifesting, we must not lose sight of the molecules and atoms in our consideration of the mass. A bit of rock, crystal, or dirt is but an aggregation of countless molecules grouped together in certain crystallized shapes and forms, each having characteristics of its own. These molecules cling together in accordance with their mutual attractive powers. And each of these molecules is composed of a number of atoms which cling together in accordance with chemical affinity or chemism, but which is but another name for attraction or cohesion, and which form a little family called a molecule. And these atoms are composed of corpuscles. We will waive the consideration of the corpuscle for the moment, but even if we consider it, we only carry the subject back a step farther. What we wish to say could be said even if there were ten further divisions of substance, or a million for that matter. The point we wish you to consider now is that we must separate the mass into its constituents, its molecules, atoms, and even corpuscles in our search for the life in the mineral and chemical world. If there is life in the mass, there must be life in the molecule, atom, and corpuscle. Now, do we find it there? Certainly, for the tiniest atom manifests its attractive power, and not only does it draw other atoms to itself by virtue thereof, but it even goes a step further and shows a preference, a degree of liking, in its mutual relations with other atoms. We shall see in future chapters that there is desire, love, marriage, and divorce among the chemical atoms. We shall consider the flirtations and love affairs of certain atoms. We shall see how an atom will leave another and fly to a new charmer. We shall have many evidences of the atom's power to receive sensations and to respond to the same. Nothing dead about this, is there? The atom is very much alive. The attraction, affinity, and motions of the atom give a certain evidence of something very much like life, as we see it in higher forms. In the atom exists all the life that causes crystallization, and in the atom lies that which causes force and motion to manifest. Verily, the atom lives and moves and has its being. And so our journey is ended. We have traced life to its last stages of manifestation, and we have found it there, and at each step of the journey. But stop, we have not completed our journey. We have but begun it. Why, some of us may cry, how can we go back of the atom or electron? The answer is into the ether. Yes, back of the atom and the corpuscle is said by science to lie that wonderful paradoxical something they call the universal ether. That something that science has considered the womb of matter and force. Something that is different from anything ever known or dreamed of by man. That something which science has labored so diligently to build up, and which it has used as an explanation for so much phenomena, but regarding which, of very recent date, there has begun to grow a distrust and a suspicion owing to the discovery of radiant matter and things that followed in its train. 
but notwithstanding these shadowy suspicions, science still asserts in belief in the constancy and integrity of the ether, and it behooves us to investigate that wonderful region in which it dwells, in order to see whether life and mind are also to be found there. We think that, in the words of the street, we shall find that they are very much there. And so in later chapters of this book we shall consider the ethereal region very fully. But before doing so, we had better give substance and motion in all their forms a careful consideration, for a correct understanding of them is vitally necessary for an intelligent conception of the ideas underlying the philosophy to be herein set forth. Now pray do not leave this chapter with the belief that the writer has said that the particles of inorganic substance are endowed with conscious reasoning powers. Nothing of the kind has been said. Nothing of the kind is meant. The life and mind evidenced in the particles are but the faintest glimmerings. There is no sign of consciousness or reasoning. The mind exhibited is less than that of the plant, yes, less than even that of the cell of the plant. The life is evidenced by power to move, and the mind is evidenced by the ability to receive impressions and to respond to the same by evidencing force and movement. There is no evidence of consciousness or understanding in these mental processes. Consciousness is not an essential attribute of life or mind action. In fact, but a small part of even the mentation of man is performed in the field of consciousness. Nearly all of his bodily functions are beneath the field of consciousness. One does not consciously regulate the beating of his heart, the circulation of his blood, the digestion and assimilation of his food, the tearing down and building up work of the cells, the work of the organs, etc., etc. Yes, these processes are all mental processes, and far from mere mechanical movements or chemical processes as some imagine, let the spark of life leave the body and the processes stop, although all the chemicals are still there, and the mechanical movements might go on unhindered. The particles of substance have enough life and mind to enable them to move, receive, and respond to impressions, and to exert force in accordance with the law of attraction, but there it stops. The crystals show signs of something like taking nourishment, but the real taking of food may be said to commence with the Monera. Not until high degrees of life and mind are attained do creatures begin to exhibit consciousness, and that which is called understanding is still higher in the scale, and not until man is reached does the faculty of turning the mental searchlight inward manifest itself. These matters are mentioned here merely to prevent misunderstanding and misapprehension. But still, do not forget, the particles of substance receive impressions and respond thereto. They act and exert force and energy. They manifest life and mentation. End of chapter 4